We're going to consider the importance of the bodily resurrection of Christ today. Its importance to the narrative biography of the Apostle Paul. Its importance to the history of redemption. Its importance to the history of our redemption. Let's begin with the text itself which is chapter 1, verses 18b through 20. I'll actually pick up the continuity from verse 15. The beloved Son of the Father, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I remind you of the structure of this profound section of Colossians 1, beginning at verse 13, and the proper translation of the text, the Greek text, using the relative pronouns, who, referring back to God the Father, who delivered us or rescued us, verse 15, now moving to God the Son, the beloved Son of the Father, who is first in rank or role in the new creation because he is the visible reality of the invisible God. And that brings us to verse 18b. Once again, the beloved son of the father who is first in rank or role as the beginning of the resurrection from the dead by which resurrection he reveals himself, he proves himself as the reality of the fullness of deity, as verse 19 indicates. Now, in our previous expositions of this portion of the first chapter, we have suggested that there is a reflection of the Apostle Paul's narrative biography in this structural sequence. Verse 13, which mentions the darkness. Darkness mimics the darkness of Saul of Tarsus's Jewish world. <clears throat> A darkness which is shattered by the light of heaven's glory on the road to Damascus. A light potentially referred to In verse 12. Verse 15. In the light of the world to come, Saul sees a person who is the icon, the image of God in the arena of God's habitation. Namely, he sees the Lord of the new creation in the environment of the new creation which surrounds him. And now, verse 18b, Paul sees that person 
who is the center of the new creation world of light inexpressible, he sees that that person is resurrected from the dead in the body. All of this Paul sees on the Damascus Road. Saul of Tarsus sees the light of the eschatological world disclosed to him. An eschatological light which overcomes his inky black darkness. Saul of Tarsus sees the person of God the Son in that eschatological new creation world disclosed to him by which the Son of God draws him, the Apostle, into himself, into a wonderful new relationship with himself, into himself as Lord and God of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus sees the eschatological resurrection body of God the Son in that eschatological world of eschatological life and light. A sight which arrests him with the finality of the resurrection of the dead in the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth, a person Saul of Tarsus was convinced was dead, a corpse in a tomb. Jesus of Nazareth, a person Saul of Tarsus was persuaded was a fraud, an imposter, a blasphemer. Saul of Tarsus now sees Jesus of Nazareth alive from the dead, resplendent in resurrection glory, dramatically, declaratively authenticated as the Son of God by power of the resurrection from the dead. Notice the revolution which turned Saul's world upside down. As a Jew, Saul of Tarsus had been taught and believed that the bodily resurrection was the sign of God's kingdom come on earth. A kingdom of a restored Jewish theocratic monarchy. A renewal of creation as a Jewish nationalistic kingdom on earth. A visible messianic Political Judaism. That's what he had been taught. As a Jew with his horizontal flatline eschatology. But what he sees on the Damascus Road is not what his Jewish eschatology had taught him. The bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth brings the eschatological resurrection of the dead into his now time. His this time. His my time. A sign of a spiritual kingdom of God 
a sign of a spiritual kingdom of God on earth as it now is in heaven. Something so startling, something so arresting, something which is nothing less than a paradigm shift in Jewish Saul's thinking is staring him right in the face on the Damascus Road. He's seeing the eschaton on the Damascus Road. It is nothing less than a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and his new biographical narrative, this man passing from life to death, this man passing from life to the release of the soul in death, this man passing then to burial of the body in the ground, this man passing then to the reunion of body and soul, and then to resurrection of the same body, soul, person from the dead, and then this man finally appearing from heaven in heaven's all-glorious atmosphere. Notice that sequence that dawns and presses down upon the consciousness and the, the, the belief or the reality of Saul of Tarsus. Jesus of Nazareth lived. Saul of Tarsus knew that. Jesus of Nazareth died. Saul of Tarsus knew that. Jesus of Nazareth died body-soul separation. Jesus of Nazareth was buried. Saul of Tarsus knew that. Three days later, that body-soul is reunited. Saul of Tarsus didn't know that. He rises from the dead in his body-soul glory. Saul of Tarsus now knows that on the Damascus Road. And that body sits and stands and reigns in heaven as a glorified Son of God. And now Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road knows that about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And the significance of all of that biographical narrative, all of that eschatological reality, the significance of it is that Jesus of Nazareth goes through all the elements of the end of history. He goes through all the elements of the end of the world in his history. Hit all that end of the world reality comes into the midst of history 2,000 years ago in the biography of Jesus of Nazareth, the beloved Son of God, the Father Almighty. The eschatological reunion of body and soul. The final eschatological resurrection of the body-soul union. The entrance of that resurrected body-soul union into heaven. The glorification of that body-soul union in the kingdom of heaven. All this occurs to Jesus of Nazareth. He experiences all of it. But every Jew was taught that that would have to wait till the end of the world. Till the final day of the final world. Paul sees it in front of him 
in this world. And note, this resurrection of Jesus is the declaration that he has already been judged. He has already experienced the final judgment in his flesh. He has been a judged a sinner who knew no sin and handed over to death of the body on account of the curse of sin. His soul acquitted in being given up to heaven, judged no longer subject to death by resurrection of his body soul. Acquitted, if you will, by resurrection from the dead. Declared adjudged worthy of the kingdom of heaven forever and ever, completely cleared of any accusation against him in taking his seat in glory as the fully vindicated Son of God, Son of Man. That is what is dawning on Saul of Tarsus. That is what is pressing him down into a sweet union with this eschatological Savior, this eschatological reality, this eschatological new creation, this eschatological bodily resurrection. Paul being pressed down into conformity to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the beloved Son of God the Father. The eschatological not yet becomes the eschatological now for Jesus of Nazareth and Saul of Tarsus sees it, sees it with his own eyes. The eschatological kingdom of God becomes the semi-eschatological now kingdom of heaven for Jesus of Nazareth and Saul of Tarsus sees it with his own eyes. He is bathed in its light its glory light, its atmosphere, its new creation atmosphere, its resurrection power, its life from the dead power. Saul of Tarsus sees and believes and experiences and is transformed by the central person of the story of redemption, the central person in his story of redemption, Saul of Tarsus, dies on that road to Damascus, and Paul in Christ is resurrected on that road to Damascus. He is transferred out of the one order and transferred into the other order. He is translated out of the one arena and translated into the other arena. That is what happens to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And the resurrection of the body of Jesus of Nazareth is central to that drama. No Jewish theocratic monarchical kingdom, no, the in Christ Christocentric kingdom of God is what Saul sees. No Jewish political earthly kingdom. No, the in Christ Christocentric kingdom of heaven is what Saul sees. No Jewish eschatological 
waiting for the end of the world, for the resurrection of the dead to occur. No, in Christ the first fruits of them that sleep, the resurrection of the dead has begun and will be consummated when he returns in his resurrection body, soul at the end of the age. No Jewish marginalizing the resurrection of the dead to the end times. No, Christ makes the resurrection of the dead central to our times. The times between the times. The now times of the interadventual age. The now time between his first and his second advent. Paul enters into the now of the not yet. These times are resurrection times in Christ. These times are life from the dead times in Christ. These times are transformed times in Christ. Death to life risen in Christ with death to life translation of the resurrected Christ. Jesus Christ has been translated by resurrection from the dead. Saul of Tarsus was translated by resurrection from the dead on that Damascus road. We have been translated by resurrection from the dead, in Christ Jesus as he was. Jesus Christ has been justified by resurrection from the dead. Paul, Saul of Tarsus was justified by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have been justified by the resurrection of the dead in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ has been declared not guilty by resurrection from the dead. We have been declared, along with Saul of Tarsus, not guilty by the resurrection of the dead in Christ Jesus. Jesus has been transferred from darkness to light by the resurrection from the dead. We have been transferred from darkness to light with Saul of Tarsus in Christ Jesus. Jesus has been declared with power to be the Son of God by resurrection from the dead. We have been declared with Saul of Tarsus, sons and daughters of God by resurrection from the dead in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is what Paul is assumed into. Into union with Christ on that Damascus road is what happens to Saul of Tarsus. It is the very same for us and the Colossians, as it is for him, as it is in Christ himself. Saul's Jewish eschatology is transferred to the eschatology of Christ on the Damascus Road. Saul's Jewish theology is transferred to theology in Christ on the Damascus Road. Saul's Jewish Christology is transferred to Christology of Christ on the Damascus Road. 
Paul's Jewish soteriology is transferred to the soteriology in Christ on the Damascus Road. And Saul's Jewish morality is transferred to the morality in Christ on the Damascus Road. Everything changes. Nothing is ever the same again after that Damascus Road experience for that Jew from Tarsus who sat at the feet of Gamaliel and was rigidly indoctrinated in Jewish his horizontal theology and Jewish moralistic uh, works salvation. Not anymore. Not after seeing the risen body of Jesus of Nazareth. And you think the bodily resurrection of Christ is not a basic, important doctrine. And how many are there who say that the bodily resurrection of Christ is a theory and not a basic and essential Christian doctrine? And how many denominations have been formed in reaction to those who have regarded the bodily resurrection of Christ as a theory or a phantasm or an imagination or an hallucination? And how many New Testament scholars believe that the record of what Paul saw on the Damascus Road, which is repeated three times in the book of Acts, how many New Testament scholars believe that it is a hallucination? It is a phantasm. It is a myth of his own creation out of his Freudian psychological guilt in which he was ashamed of what he had done to Christians before. And so he had a kind of epiphany of self-purgation and came out of his guilt to accept Christians on a horizontal plane. A mere human psychological renovation or reformation. That is how they mythologize the experience of Paul on the, Apostle, on the Damascus Road. That is how the liberals remove or destroy or deconstruct the experience of Paul on the Damascus Road. That is how they remove the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the theological discussion. And so the issue is before us resurrected Jesus Christ changes the doctrine, the faith, the eschatology of Saul the Jew. He becomes Paul the Christian on the, on the Damascus Road. The bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth changes the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle on the Damascus Road. True or false, real or hallucination, reality or myth. Dead bodies don't rise. Ergo, Jesus of Nazareth, dead body didn't rise. That's the mantra of all liberal Christianity. 
Well, then, what do you mean by the resurrection of Christ? It's a symbol of ongoing inspiration. It makes you feel good in the face of death. It's not real, but that's okay. We need to encourage you and comfort you on your way to the graveyard. My famous systematic theology professor at seminary. If the bones of Jesus of Nazareth were found tomorrow, it wouldn't make any difference to my faith. That doesn't sound like 1 Corinthians 15, but nonetheless, there was an ordained minister in the Protestant denomination teaching in a Protestant theological seminary, making a bold statement. He even made it during Holy Week. But he still believed in the resurrection. A symbol, a myth, perhaps a hallucination too. Now, let us take a further step. Let us detail Paul's doctrine of regeneration. You know what the word regeneration means. Let's take Paul's doctrine of regeneration as it is connected to the centrality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. How do we do that? The way Paul does it in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul describes our fallen, our sinful condition as a death. An already death, a now death. We are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Even when we are born, we are dead in trespasses and sin. By nature, our condition is one of enmity against God, and death is the punishment assigned to all God-haters. The only way for that punishment to be reversed is for death to be replaced with life. Life for the dead. And the only way for life to reverse death is if one who has the power of an endless life reverses death once and for all. The power of an endless life reversing Itself, even, reversing itself by participating in death, identifying with death, dying in death in time and space history. One taking the history of death and its cursed punishment into his history and crucifying it. Nailing death to death. In his own death, nailing death to death in his own death, making an open display of the death of death in his own bloody death, entering into the eschatological reversal. Life turned to death so that the eschatological reversal 
may be eschatologically reversed. Eternal death turned to eternal life. Do you see what kind of a person it takes to do that? To pull that off? Nothing less than a resurrection from the dead in the power of an endless life. Nothing less than the eschatological reversal in time and space history. It has to be done in the arena in which the offense was committed. Somebody has to come into this arena and turn the tables on the kingdom of darkness. Somebody has to take that on themselves and make that part of his biography so he can reverse it for us, even as he reverses it for himself. A resurrection from the dead in some person with a new life, new creation life, new creature life in himself. Life anew in him by resurrection from the dead. And as Paul also writes in Ephesians 2 verse 6, resurrection life for those raised up together with Christ Jesus, alive together with Christ. You notice what he's doing there in Ephesians 2. He is talking about regeneration, but he's talking about it in terms of death and resurrection. Crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. With his resurrection from the dead reversed, the crucifix, the, when his resurrection from the dead reversed the cursed punishment of death, our cursed death penalty was reversed. Because Jesus did it. Because it happened to him. It happened to us who are related to him, united to him by grace through faith. He participated in our death and then reversed it. Reversed it with resurrection life so that we may participate in the reversal of the reversal. We may be raised up to life. Resurrection life in identification, participation, union with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? The transition from death to life. The regenerative Transition from death to life. The born again transition from death to life, if you want to use John's language. That is mirrored in the transition of Jesus Christ, Son of God. His transition from death by crucifixion to life from the dead by resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is a myth then your regeneration is a myth. The bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an hallucination, then you're hallucinating by believing in your regeneration. Do you see the practical implication of this? Do you see what it comes down to? Your faith, your confidence, your union with Christ? It's a fraud if he is not risen in the body. If he's not regenerated, you are not regenerated. Yes, our regeneration, Ephesians 2, 
style explanation of regeneration. Our regeneration hangs upon Christ's regeneration. He was born again from the dead by his resurrection from the dead. Yes, I can say it. Say it clearly. Say it biblically. Jesus of Nazareth was born again from the dead by his resurrection from the dead. He went from darkness to light. He went from death to life. He went from under the curse to not cursed. Resurrection of the dead becomes the key to Paul's Christian doctrine of regeneration, rebirth, effectual calling. All of those are synonyms. Translation from the kingdom of darkness, death darkness, to the kingdom of light, resurrection, light, and life. Grasp this. Get your mind, your heart, get your faith, get your understanding around this. When Christ was transferred from dark death to life and light through his resurrection, we were brought with him. He did this pronobis for us. He included us in his death and resurrection. So, so, where was your regeneration accomplished? Where were you reborn? When Jesus Christ was reborn by resurrection from the dead, when Jesus Christ was regenerated, made alive from the dead by his omnipotent resurrection, his almighty supernatural act, that is the basis of the almighty supernatural act of the Holy Spirit uniting you to his death and resurrection in order that you may experience the eschatological reversal of the reversal. This is not an abstract doctrine. This is not a seeking after a spiritual experience. This is a recognition that your Regeneration and rebirth is anchored in a historical act, in its historical fact. It is the act and the fact of Jesus, not once upon a time, dead body no longer being dead. His once upon a time body buried in darkness no longer being in the darkness but in the light. Your regeneration, your rebirth, your effectual calling, call it all the above, it is in Christ's regeneration, Christ's rebirth, Christ's effectual calling. You don't think that his father called him out of that grave? Even as he called Lazarus out of his tomb? You don't think Jesus was effectually called from death to life? So, when he was called forth, so you who are in him, United indelibly to him, you were called forth as well. You will not look to the experience of being born again 
inside your own spiritual feelings. You will look for your regeneration and rebirth to the rebirth of Christ and the regeneration of Jesus of Nazareth by resurrection. And you will hold on to that historical fact as your confidence, hope, and assurance. If he was assuredly raised again in the body, you who trust in him and are bound to him by faith are assuredly raised again from death to life and reborn of the spirit that raised up his dead body. You're looking to redemptive history. You're not looking to abstractions or spiritual experiences or being able to name the day and the time. I'm not going to quibble with those that believe in that, but I want to move you beyond it. Paul moves into the history of what happened to Jesus of Nazareth, and that history is what he possesses as the ground of his own spiritual regeneration. You are crucified together with him so that you may be raised up together with him in the resurrection of his body from the dead. Even Paul's doctrine of regeneration is dependent. It is absolutely fundamentally dependent on the bodily resurrection of the Son of God from the dead. The historicity of Christ's bodily resurrection is crucial to your history. Crucial to your story. If it's not in his story, it can never be in yours. If it's not in his historicity, it can never be in yours. You see what's at stake here. Those who have argued for the bodily resurrection of Christ are arguing for that which is absolutely essential to the spiritual life and well-being of a believer in Christianity. Your regeneration, your blessed life, from your cursed death depends on that empty tomb. That risen Savior, Son of God, who appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road, without the bodily resurrection of Christ, there is no resurrection of you from death to life, from everlasting death to everlasting life. But in union, in union with the one who put everlasting death to death, in his everlasting resurrection life, there, there is the focus and object of your faith and confidence that you're born again, regenerated, effectually called, and belong to Jesus. The bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is absolutely fundamental to your regeneration. Now, we're going to continue to explore two more aspects of the Apostles' thought after our break, so please stretch your legs and we'll take a look at the bodily resurrection in relationship to justification and to reconciliation.
Now, let us explore Paul's doctrine of justification as it is connected to the centrality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In Romans 4.25, the Apostle Paul writes, He, Jesus, was raised up for our justification. The inspired Apostle connects our justification with the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Now, as most of us know, justification deals with the matter of righteousness. There is no justification in God's sight for the unrighteous. For them, there is only condemnation, as Romans 5 spells out. We are born under the curse of condemnation because we are born unrighteous. Now, for the reversal of our condition of condemnation to be reversed, we must possess righteousness. We must possess righteousness to reverse our unrighteousness. We must possess justification to reverse our condemnation. Once again, I remind you that these are eschatological realities. Condemnation is an eschatological reality, and justification is an eschatological reality. I've even written an article on that aspect of justification. It will take an eschatological person to reverse this eschatological reality under which we are accused and accursed. A reverser, a reverser of the reversal, must himself be reversed by the reversal. He must enter into condemnation so that he may enter into justification. He must be condemned that he may be justified. In time and space history, this reverser of the reversal. This magnificent Son of God must be condemned. The cross of his crucifixion is the historical demonstration of his condemnation. He is condemned to death as unrighteous in God's sight. Yes, vicariously, but nonetheless really, actually, in history. The Son of God is condemned as a forsaken son of sin. At that moment of dereliction on the cross, he is regarded as unrighteous in God's sight. He is charged with a weight of sin and declared unrighteous, unjustified, unright with God. And his grave, his tomb of death, is a ratification in history of that sentence of reversal. Righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the damning sentence of reversal falls upon him. My God, you have forsaken me. As one unrighteous in your sight, so I die the death of the unrighteous. I die the death of the condemned as a criminal upon a gibbet, and thus I go into the eschatological reversal by death 
and condemnation and unrighteousness and unjustification. But behold the wonder of the reversal of the reversal. An eschatological acquittal, an eschatological righteousness, an eschatological justification. This condemned criminal is not dead. His death sentence has been commuted. His unrighteousness has been removed. His justification has been declared. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been justified from condemnation by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been declared righteous from unrighteous by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been acquitted before the bar of divine justice and has been declared not guilty by His resurrection from the dead. The bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus is crucial to our justification. It is crucial to our justification because it is crucial to Jesus' justification. When were you justified? You were justified when Jesus of Nazareth was declared justified in the sight of God by His bodily resurrection. You were declared righteous in God's sight when Jesus of Nazareth was declared righteous in God's sight by His bodily resurrection. You were declared not guilty in God's sight when Jesus of Nazareth, the divine Son of God, your Savior, was declared not guilty in God's sight by His bodily resurrection. The justification of Jesus is your justification confirmed by His bodily resurrection. The righteousness of Jesus is your righteousness confirmed by His bodily resurrection. The acquittal of Jesus from the curse is your acquittal from the curse by His bodily resurrection. Paul's doctrine of justification requires the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are drawn into the drama of the great eschatological reversal in history, in the history in which you've made the offense which requires that reversal. You are unrighteous in His sight. You will never be righteous in His sight unless there is a righteousness which you can lay hold of. And that righteousness has been declared with power by resurrection from the dead, as Paul says in Romans 1. You have to have this historic fact at the ground of your own personal justification, your righteousness before God, because you are not going to go into heaven without justification. You're not going to go into heaven without righteousness. No one enters that new creation without the righteousness of the new creator, without the justification of the one who justifies us from all unrighteousness. Your justification is as Paul's justification. It is in the justification of Jesus Christ by the bodily resurrection from the dead. And so we come finally 
to the Apostle Paul's doctrine of reconciliation. His doctrine of peace with God. No peace with God without an end of divine wrath against the sinner. No reconciliation with God without the cessation of enmity from the sinner against God. No peace with God without a peacemaker who can reconcile holy God and unholy sinners. No reconciliation with God without a reversal of the reversal. The once upon a time friend with God reversed his condition and nature by rebelling in hostile and hostile enmity against his creator. Now that implacable enmity defies the Creator with the eternal rebel cry, no peace with God. The rebel cry, no peace with God, even unto death and beyond. No peace with God ever. That's the cry of the eternal rebel. But there is a person in history who has emerged from death and beyond emerged from the realm of no peace, emerged by resurrection from the dead in order to reverse the reversal, and this one risen in the body, scarred with the wounds of his, ba- of his battle with that realm of no peace. This resurrected peacemaker has made peace by becoming no peace vicariously by reversing his own peace vicariously, by being vicariously regarded as a rebel at enmity with God, a bloody, broken, dead enemy of God, in order to reverse his blood shed with living blood, to reverse his broken body with a living body raised up, and to reverse his vicarious enmity with peace, peace with God, a covenant of peace signed in his own precious blood and stamped in the glorious resurrected body of his very name which speaks peace, peace, perpetual peace because he is the Prince of Peace. He is the peace mediator between holy God and hostile rebel man. He has made peace by the eschatological reversal of his eschatological role. He has reversed himself in order that you and I may have peace with God. And all this blessed peace in reconciliation is through the body of his flesh. The body of his flesh, now resurrected, a body raised up as the beginning of the new creation. Which body, which person declares, I am no rebel God-hater. I love and am the beloved of my Father. I am not hostile or a hostile enemy of God. I am peace incarnate. I am peace incarnate and the reconciler of God's elect. I am not alienated from the feast of reconciliation In the dwelling place of God, I am God's well-beloved Son who has brought peace to heaven and to earth, to the visible and invisible worlds, 
to the new creation in my risen glory where the war is over. Enmity has ceased. Alienation is no more forever because my resurrection declares that where my bodily resurrected person resides, there, there is peace forevermore. There is reconciliation forevermore. Where my bodily resurrected person resides, there is forevermore God and sinners reconciled in eternal shalom. So come and sit down at my banquet of peace in my everlasting kingdom of peace. Come take a seat at the eternal table of reconciliation where we will sup together. We will sup together in blessed, never-ending peace and rest. Come to me. I am the peacemaker. I am the mediator of peace. I am the reconciler as I am the one eternally reconciled. Your reconciliation is found in me because I made peace for you by the blood of my cross. Paul's doctrine of reconciliation, a peace with God, depends on the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Randy, you had your hand up. Substitutionary. In your place. He takes your place on your behalf. So in his life history, he is taking on your life history. He's even taking on your sinful life history in his history. So my point here is to underscore the fact that in his bodily resurrection, he's declaring these aspects of this great reversal in which the Son of God reverses his own story. In order to be the antithesis of himself in many ways, vicariously speaking. But the antithesis of himself in order that he may resolve, cure, and redeem the reversal under which we all labor and are cursed. This is the mystery of the incarnation. This is the great thing about Christianity. It makes it different than any other religion in the world. That God in himself, in the person of his son, would take on the opposite of his own character. And he would do that. To redeem redeem miserable, damnable sinners like you and me. That, that is majestic as well as saving grace super abundantly displayed. So, we come back to Colossians 1 verse 18b. Do you now see how loaded how powerful, how freighted, how... This is like, this is like a, one of those stretched out trains of, of coal going across the country. You know, it's endless. You never see the end of them. They can catch them by helicopter on the film going out to the horizon and there's no... There's, oh, you see how freighted this language is in 18b. First born from the dead. I've loaded it up. With reconciliation. I've loaded it up with regeneration. I've loaded it up with justification. I've loaded it up, and I haven't even begun to exhaust it. The horizon is still out there, and the train is still loaded. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, fundamental to Paul's doctrine, his doctrine of God, 
his theology, his doctrine of Christ, his Christology, his doctrine of salvation, his soteriology, his doctrine of final and permanent things, his eschatology, his doctrine of the new creation, verse 15 of Colossians 1, his doctrine of regeneration, Colossians, uh, Ephesians 2, his doctrine of justifications, Romans 3, 5, etc., his doctrine of reconciliation, Colossians 1, 20. All these are tied to, united with, the beginning of the resurrection from the dead in the resurrection of the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth. The freight is all loaded on Jesus, who is the engine pulling the freight train. He's drawing all of this out. And Paul's focusing on this one essential element of it, this fundamental element of it, namely the firstborn from the dead, the bodily resurrection of the body of Jesus of Nazareth. So let me summarize and review what we've learned today, that you may come to love it, that you may delight in it all the more, that you rejoice with joy unspeakable because of it, because you see yourself in the story of Jesus, your Savior. He did this for you to reverse your reversal. He reversed his reversal. Paul's view of God and Christ and eschatology changed on the Damascus Road. Paul's view of everything, all his Jewish theology, all changed on the Damascus Road. He couldn't be a Jew anymore. No longer looking at the face of the risen Christ, no more Jewish theology. He saw the light of the kingdom of God blinding his sight. He saw the Son of God in his glory and heard him speak into his own darkness. He saw and experienced the realm of the new creation in Christ Jesus with its visible and invisible, its earthly and heavenly atmosphere. He saw all of it. He saw the resurrected Jesus in his body, alive from the dead, He realized and he experienced all things had become new. Old things were passed away. Behold, he was witnessing and feeling the reality of all things made new to him. All things made new in him. All things made new in Christ Jesus. Paul was regenerated, transferred from death to life in Christ's regeneration. In Christ's transfer from death to life by resurrection, there is Paul's regeneration. Paul was justified, transferred from condemnation to justification. In Christ's justification, in Christ's transfer from condemnation to acquittal and vindication by resurrection is Paul's justification. And Paul was reconciled to God, transferred from enmity with God to peace with God, in Christ's reconciliation with God, in Christ's transfer from enemy of God to friend with God by reason of resurrection, there is Paul's doctrine of reconciliation. Regeneration, justification, reconciliation because of the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus 
of Nazareth from that tomb in Jerusalem. That's what stopped Saul of Tarsus, Jew, of the feet of Gamaliel. That's what stopped him. That's what changed him. That's what made him a new creation in Christ Jesus. He could never go back. Could never go back to that Jewish theology. He went forward in Christ to the theology of the kingdom of heaven breaking in upon his own life and existence. This is the story that Colossians 1 holds out before you when it uses the parallel between the firstborn of creation and the firstborn by resurrection from the dead. All of redemptive history, all of redemptive history is summed up in Christ Jesus. And one of the confirmations of that summation is that living, glorified body which sits at the right hand of glory on high even now and makes peace, changes life from death to light, and justifies with no condemnation because the one at that right hand in that body is himself justified and no longer condemned to a cross of death and its consequence, a dark graveyard tomb. He lives in that body. Paul saw it. And so we follow in his train. Any questions, comments? Let's close with prayer. Where is the transition for us, Lord? Where do we pass over from one reign of power, a terrible and horrible reign of power, bondage, of death, where do we pass from one arena to the other? It is in the death and resurrection of your Son. Thank you for delivering us out of darkness into the light of the glorious risen Lord Jesus. Thank you from taking us from a state of condemnation to justification in the justification of your dear Son, condemned to death, justified by the resurrection of his body, no longer dead, alive forever. And we thank you, O Lord, because we are justified by faith in him, We are reconciled. We have peace with God. We see how important this resurrected body is to us, Lord. Because it is the importance of the resurrected Son of God to us. He is 
our life from the dead. He is our justification out of condemnation. He is our peace with God, no longer at enmity. He is all of this and more to us. How we love him. How we trust him. How we hold on to him. How we delight in our union with him. So bless it sweetly to our comfort and encouragement, to our strength and to our obedience, to our walk in the world, to our life before the face of God the Father in the person and work of God the Son to the indwelling power of God the Holy Spirit. Amen.